Well, welcome back, guys. Uh, week two, chapters three through five. And Joshua, next week we finally get to Jericho. So sit tight. It is coming. You can watch your Reggie Tales or whatever. But this week is, is my favorite. Chapters three through five and Joshua have been the ones, and I'm allowed to say that later. If I decide to change my mind and say that like chapter eight is my favorite, that's allowed. You guys can change that. But for now, this is my favorite. So let's, let's just jump in to this story. Chapter three starts where the people of God are camped out at the banks of the Jordan River. And it says that they're camped there for three days. And right away, we should say, why? Why, why the delay? Why the pause? I wonder what it would have been like. I got a little bit of echo going on here. Thanks. Um, what would it have been like to be them and have to wait for three days? I mean, remember what we talked about? Some of them would have uh, remembered, maybe just faintly, but remembered the crossing of the Red Sea. Or they would, at least would have heard the stories about crossing the Red Sea. So maybe they were sitting there, and you guys got to remember, they don't have this all written down like we do. They don't know what God's about to do. Maybe they wondered. Maybe they hoped, maybe they wished that God was going to do for them what he did for the generation before, that he would split the waters. But either way, for three days, they had to sit there, and the anticipation built, and the tension built. And then they were given instructions. They were told that the ark was going to come through, that the priests were going to carry it, and that they were going to go all the way into the Jordan River. And we took some time to make sure that we understood what we needed to about the ark. And I think we counted that it was used more than 20 times in this chapter. The ark was talked about a lot. So the author wants us to understand the ark is the most important subject. It's the most important character, if you will, in this story. So the details were that they were supposed to keep their eyes on the ark, but that they weren't supposed to get too close to it and that they needed to consecrate themselves or purify themselves they needed to stay in their place and stay focused on the ark. And, and so we went back into a couple places to see what we needed to understand. The ark came originally from the instructions that God gave to Moses when he was teaching him about all of the pieces in the tabernacle. Okay, we saw that the ark was in the Holy of Holies. It was in the innermost place of God's tent, of the tabernacle. On top of it, was called the mercy seat. So the lid of the ark was called the mercy seat. On top of it was two angels that were kind of looking towards each other and down. Inside of the ark would have been at least part of the law. And later on, Aaron's rod, Aaron the priest, his rod would be in there and manna would be put in there. What we need to understand about the ark, and we saw it in Psalm 80, is that the ark was understood to be the place where God dwelt. It was his throne. If you remember from week one, we are supposed to be looking for where God is depicted as king. So guys, picture this scene at the banks of the Jordan River. The ark and the priests, they're moving through the thousands, if not millions of people. And it's being held on these two poles. Okay, these long poles going through these rings so that no one would touch the ark. And it's moving through the camp and they step into the Jordan River. And when the priest's feet go into the water, the waters part and they go through on dry 
ground. Guys, what we need to feel, what we need to kind of sense in our imagination here, it's like a king is moving through his people. He is moving through a group of his people. We are supposed to picture that a king is leading his people near to battle. If we see the ark as the throne of God, then we need to see God as king moving through, leading his people. We looked at our prepositions. We saw over and over again that God went before them, before them, before them. God was leading. God himself was with them. This week, we could not overstate God with us. God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. So guys, they crossed through the Jordan River and you can imagine, it's, I think it says like with haste, right? They get through as quickly as they can, probably because they don't want to die, right? Who knows how long the waters are going to stay up. So they go through with haste and you can imagine the energy on the other side of crossing the waters, right? They would be hooting and hollering, right? They would be high-fiving and hugging. They would be singing and clapping. They would be so excited. Imagine the adrenaline. The sympathetic nervous systems were going crazy at this point. Everyone was hyped up. God had just flexed. God had just done something powerful. And then they hear that the kings of the land are terrified. They heard what God did for his people. Guys, we need to feel the energy be up here at this moment. This was incredible. Tons of adrenaline. Now is the time to fight, right? Doesn't that make sense? I mean, let's hit it while it's hot. We're all feeling good. We're excited. The kings of the land are scared. We have a miracle right in our rearview mirror. Let's go. Let's attack. Let's get what is ours. And I think that sometimes we can feel this way. Maybe God does something really powerful in our life. We see something pretty visible from God, and we've got some spiritual adrenaline. We're feeling pretty awesome that God would go before us and that we would get to experience something so visible, so awesome. And we're like, yes, let's keep going. Now's the time to get what is mine. Now's the time to seize blessing. I'm a child of God. Let's do this. But does God always keep moving us forward at the same pace? Does God always do what we expect? No. So what does God do in this story? After they cross the river or the sea, after they build this memorial, God tells the people of Israel to be circumcised. Now, you know that a women's ministry is got it going on when I get text the day that we talk about circumcision and people say, you're totally excited to talk about this, aren't you? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yes. Guys, we try to get to this topic whenever we can in the Bible because it's so cool. And I'm serious. Some of you don't know if you're supposed to laugh or not right now. I really do think this is a really cool theme in the Bible. And I don't know if I would geek out so much if I wasn't a nurse or a mom of boys. I don't know. Maybe that's weird. But I love this theme. So let's talk about it. You guys, it's okay. You guys are oddly quiet. Come on, just chill out. Okay. We have to talk about it because it's in here. Chapter five, the new generation gets circumcised. They come through and God, it's like a hard stop, right? It's a pause. 
He says, no, everyone who has not been circumcised must get circumcised. Okay, they used flint knives. So not steel knives, flint, as in rock knives to perform this surgery, guys. Okay, probably not much for anesthetic going on in this day and age. And this is a surgery intended for babies and is now being done on grown men. Okay, let's add to this. Let's recall where they are. So here was the Jordan, and here's Jericho, their enemies. So someone in our group pointed out, like, they're, they're walled in. You got an enemy here and waters here, and now we are going to be wounded? No way, God. We must have heard you wrong. You want these adult men to be circumcised. When it's time for battle, we're supposed to attack Jericho. And this is the first of several God-ordained pauses in our text this week. God is saying, no, it is not time to go grab what is yours. It is not time to go grab your victory. There is something more important. There is something that must happen first. You must obey. See, circumcision had been part of God's covenant with his people back to Abraham. It was commanded that all of the boys at day eight, I think, were supposed to be circumcised. Why? Mostly it was about distinction. And we looked at that in our homework. It was about God's people looking different than the rest of the world. That's really important for right now because they are about to go be among a pagan people again, just like when they were in Egypt. They are about to go jump into the world. You can say they need to look different. God has called them out that they might be his. They need to look different. And circumcision was the evidence of that, the sign of that. It was both outward and yet intimate and external. It was close to the body and private, yet it was visible. But it was commanded. And so we must assume that they hadn't been obeying God in this way, at least the majority of them. So we should take note of that. The people of God had not been obedient in this way up until this point. And God is saying, what matters more than going and attacking Jericho right now is obedience. Specifically, it's about purity. But guys, there's even more there. Because if you can hang with me through the giggles a little bit more, they were going to be the children of God. They were to be a mighty nation. They were to take that Genesis 1 and 2 command to be fruitful and multiply. How are you fruitful and multiply? You make babies. So even the part of the body that was required for being fruitful and multiplying needed to be an object of obedience and purity. The flesh, the skin must be removed. The way of the world must be removed for the people of God to look and to act and to perform like God's people. But at the heart level, guys, here's what I see with this. And this is from multiple commentators. Before the people of God could be a conquering people, they had to be a circumcised people. Before the people of God could be warriors, they had to be wounded. When God saved Rahab last week, we said, wow, he's merciful. When God split the Jordan, we say, wow, he's merciful. 
What about when we read that God wounds his people? Could we say it then? God thought it important to humble his people before he would give them victory, to wound them that he might heal them, to humble them that he might exalt them. They took their time to heal, and now, man, now they're good and humble. They've seen a miracle. They've been humbled. Now it must be time to attack. It must be time to get our victory. But then we got another God-ordained pause. God said, nope, it's time to celebrate Passover. First of all, guys, I thought it was really cool that God and his sovereignty over the calendar, the annual calendar, would have Passover line up at this time. That's pretty cool. He says that he wants them to pass to celebrate Passover. And that took us back to Exodus 12 when they had the first Passover coming out of Egypt. You guys know the story. We were already there last week where each household was told to sacrifice a lamb and to put the blood on the doorframe. And that blood would cover that house. It would keep them safe from destruction. So here it says in chapter 5, Verse 10, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, so keep Gilgal in your mind as we go through this study, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And on that day, on, and the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. Guys, I love this so much. So again, the, the author gives us description, almost like baiting us to, um, to picture this scene. They're on the plains of Jericho, okay? The sea is behind them. Jericho is ahead of them. And here they are, and they are told to feast. They are told to sit down, pull up a chair, and feast. Did you hear that line in Psalm 23? You prepare a table where? In the presence of my enemies. Again, wouldn't you think now is the time for us to be soldiers? Now is the time to fight. And yet they are told to instead act like children being invited to the dinner table. They are again being invited to trust, to not rely on their own strength or their own timetable or their own plans or their own understanding. They are told to pull up a seat at the table of God and to feast and this would be a feast of remembrance. Over and over again throughout the Pentateuch, God's people are told to remember. To remember what God has done. And this is actually the second time we've seen it in this text. There's a whole chapter that we, at least I said, is kind of anticlimactic. They cross the waters and then they have to go back in. and Oh yeah, go back in, get 12 big rocks and set, it, set up a memorial. And we see this happen all the time. Even in the book of Joshua, you're going to see this, these memorials set up over and over again. So we've got to ask, why? Why so redundant? Why would this be so important? And it's because, simply, they were a forgetful people. They were going to forget what God had done for them. And here they are, guys, and they're sitting down at this feast, so to speak. And what needed to be happening at this feast is that they would be telling the stories of God. They would be saying, let's not forget this and let's not forget this. And can you remember that? 
Or maybe even remembering the stories from their years in the wilderness. See, when times were good, they needed to be getting the skill of remembering what God had done because they were about to jump into battle. They were about to jump into the unknowns of the promised land. And what would allow them to have faith no matter what they face is remembering what God had done. And guys, that does not come naturally. We asked in our homework, like, if you want to remember something, what do you do? And I am guessing that most of you in this day and age said, take a picture of it, right? So I don't even know about you. I don't like clutter at all. So my kids come home with like all their cute artwork and I'm like, oh, that's great. And they like want to keep it all. I just take a picture of it with my phone and then it disappears. And then I don't have any more clutter. Life hack, if you want it. Don't judge me. My house is way cleaner because of it. So I take a picture of it, right? Or if you really want to remember something, you take a picture and then you hang it up where you're always going to see it, right? It's because we're training our minds over and over again to remember whatever that picture symbolizes or whatever memory that encapsulates, something that we don't want to leak out of our minds. Guys, what God was saying as he commanded Joshua to tell the people to do this memorial with the rocks and to celebrate Passover. He was telling them to get better, to be trained in memorizing the works of God. And walking through that Jordan River, they weren't going to be able to rely on something scribbled in the sand, so to speak. It was so important that they would have to etch it in stone. To remember what God has done is important. And I don't think any of us would disagree, but what do we actually do to be good at that, right? Like, I think we are like, yes, I want to remember what God has done before so that I can move forward. But guys, you know, this is a really simple way to do it. We need to talk about it. We all talk to people all day. We text, we email, we talk all the time. What are we talking about? Are we telling each other the stories of God? Are we telling each other, even just so we can hear it come out of our lips, what God has done in our life, small or big, seemingly insignificant or something momentous in our life? If we're going to talk, guys, let's talk about what God has done. Let's talk about the Jordan rivers that have been dried for us. Let's talk about the valleys of the shadow of death that he has led us through. Let's talk about our salvation Let's talk about the comfort that the Spirit has brought us. The people of God would need to remember the ways that God had provided and protected them if they were going to win their battles in the promised land. The next little scene that we come across in our text this week comes after their eating of the produce of the land And it says in verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Okay, so let's just stop and let's imagine this scene again. When Joshua was by Jericho. So lots of commentators were talking about, you know, it seems like Joshua is maybe off by himself near to Jericho, which makes sense for what what he's about to think of this stranger in just a second. So he's off of Jericho, and who knows? I mean, if I'm him, I'm wondering, are we ever going to get to get this thing started? Like, when is it going to be time? 
Who knows, what was his faith like in this moment? Was he strategizing a plan? Was he praying? We don't know, but let's remember that he is a man at this point who has quite the challenge ahead of him. And he's off by Jericho thinking who knows what. And he lifts up his eyes and he looks and behold, there's a man standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. This would be terrifying. Don't skip by this. It would seem that Joshua is by himself. And there is now another fighter, a warrior of some sorts in front of him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua goes to him. Stop. Point Joshua. This is impressive. Guys, once again, we are seeing him as a capable leader. He goes towards what could be an enemy with a drawn sword. So I hope you noted again in our text this week that over and over again, Joshua is being depicted as the next Moses, where the people maybe wondered, is, is this guy going to be enough? Is he going to be strong enough, brave enough, smart enough? He is proving to be as good as Moses so far. And the people are thinking that as well. We saw that this week. Joshua goes to him and says, are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you for us or are you for the Canaanites? Are you on our side? Are you on the side of Jericho? And he said, no. This is the ESV, no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. It, that's a weird sentence. I don't speak Hebrew, so I'm assuming it sounds better in Hebrew. He's like, no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Whatever he's saying there, Joshua gets it. And we know that from his response. He says, he falls on his face to the earth and worship him and says to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? So we see signs of humility. He falls on his face, he worships, he calls himself a servant. And the commander of the Lord's army says to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. Once again, guys, what's, who does that remind us of? Who else has a story like this? Moses, good. Take off your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. Was there anything special about that dirt? No. What would make that holy is some level of the presence of God. There is something about this commander to some degree or another that is of deity. And we could get into two camps and say, if you think that this is literally a pre-incarnate Christ, come over here. Or if you think that this is just an angel, come over here. And then we would just end it because it doesn't matter. It's really cool either way. But there are scholars that, sit, that land on either side. What we need to focus on in this chapter or in this paragraph is what we can figure out. Is that once again, God has put something in the people of Israel's way that slows them down even just for a little bit. We have our third God-ordained pause before the battle of Jericho. We saw, first of all, with circumcision that God was saying, what must happen before you're ready for battle is obedience, purity, humility. Secondly, you must remember what I have done before. And now third, we see perspective. Joshua has been elevated over and over again to be just like Moses. But at this point, the reader us is given this great insight that as great as Joshua was, he was not the commander of the Lord's army. He was a mere man. 
And this celestial being is reminding us that there was a much bigger battle that was going to be fought. There was the battle that Joshua was going to be able to see against the Canaanites, but that is not the ultimate battle. This was a battle of good versus evil. This is a battle about God as king taking back his land for his kingdom. And there are good reminders for us there, guys. The battle is not ours. We are a humble servant who has been invited into the kingdom of God. And the best thing we can do right before battle is get this perspective to know whose we are, to know who we are, to know what our role is in this battle. But guys, where this kind of convicts me is when I think of myself as Joshua in that moment. Because I would come up to him and I'd say, are you on my side? Are you on that girl that I don't like side? Right? Totally like high school language, but it still goes through my mind. (laughs) Right? Like, God, you're on my side, right? You're not on their side across town, are you? Oh, God, you're on my political side, not their political side, right? And he says, no, but I am the commander of the Lord. Now I have come. You like that little I am that's stuck in there? A little hint of who he might be talking to. Guys, it is not about us. That battle, I, I say that not to insult you, but that battle that is going through your mind, there is a chance that you're maybe thinking of a battle far too small, far too insignificant. We are in a battle of good versus evil but we already know who wins. If we are in Christ, if we are one of his children, then we get to just fall in step behind the commander of the Lord's army. So what do we learn about God from these chapters? Just like we're gonna learn every single week, he is merciful but specifically this week, guys, and I know this is so not fun to hear, sometimes God's mercy is most evident when he slows us down. Sometimes God's mercy is most felt and most seen when he no longer goes according to our timetable. When God puts in some pauses in our lives and we feel vulnerable and we feel unsure about the plan, his mercy is there. And that's not, that's not necessarily the hardest thing to understand, but what can be all the harder is when we read in this text that the mercy of God is evident when he wounds us. So what are we to do with this? How, how can we respond to these ancient truths? How do they apply to us now? I am still working on getting uh, concise words for some of what I have gone through in the last year. And some of you know bits of it, and there was a little bit of it sprinkled into our study on Mark. But about a year ago, uh, I had a pretty acute battle with anxiety, and it felt really unknown to me. It felt really foreign. I, I would use the language of like, oh, I've never had anxiety before. Uh, I think like six times a day, I'd be like, I just don't feel like myself. I just don't feel like myself. 
And at that time, prior to that, I felt like God was just parting Jordan, River, Jordan rivers over and over again. I just felt like God was just splitting waters and on the move and flexing. And everywhere we looked, God was just moving. And it was so exciting. And I had plans to try and keep up with God as he went ahead of me or ahead of my family or a Veritas. And I was excited about that. And then COVID hit and bam, I got hit with anxiety. And to share a little bit more, it actually presented as OCD. And it was so severe through the summer that I've even told some of you that I don't, I don't really remember April or May or part of June. I mean, maybe to some of you, I looked like I was still functioning. And I wasn't being fake, but most days I wasn't. I was pretty uh, incapacitated by this anxiety. I didn't have understanding of it either. I, um, it's okay to be nervous about germs, but that wasn't my deal. I wasn't nervous about getting COVID, um, but it was everything else that was changing. It was the fact that quarantine meant no people. Quarantine meant no church, at least for a while, and that's my jam. And so I just immediately felt cut back and wounded. Um, yeah, the, the story continued through the summer. got a lot worse before it got better. Tried some different uh, methods of relief, had horrible side effects from some of those methods, and it was just a very, very long road. The first Sunday that we came back for church, I thought, yes, now it is time. Like, I, I have been suffering for the Lord, but now we're coming back, and we are going to have this outdoor service, and I was so excited. Like, now it is the time to, like, reap all that fruit that has been happening from COVID, right? Like, the harvest field will be plenty, and we are going to plow ahead and, and take our promises. And that first Sunday back was the Sunday after George Floyd was killed. And the unrest that I felt at church, the unrest that I felt in our community, the fear that I had just upped my anxiety all the more. And there was just like <laughs> this delay, this pause. And what I thought, I was, I was like, okay, I, I can gut out three months of anxiety but then when it just kept going and going and going and I'm trying to parent and be a wife and function and, and then it just kept going. And guys, I saw my story in this text this week because I so badly want to plow through and experience the goodness of God. I want to plow through and experience God on the move. I want to see Jericho's walls fall. I want to get to chapter six. I want to tell people about rivers parting and walls falling, but you know what I don't really want to sit and talk about? What it feels like to be wounded by God in a somewhat private and even secret way. I don't really want to try and find words for this suffering that I was going through that I couldn't explain and I didn't know when it was going to be over. And I don't really have an end of a story for you yet. I can tell you that it seems like this text is just cycling again because while I do feel healthy again, there's some lingering anxiety still. There's still some areas of life where I'm like, I don't understand why I'm not 
feeling like I used to feel that flourishing, that feeling of flourishing and being able to experience the Lord in certain ways. But I will say that what I do know is that God has put some pauses in my last year. He has slowed me down. And while it may not feel like it right away, I know, I, I can kind of feel, even if it feels like I'm feeling in the dark, that it is his kindness. And it is his mercy. And it is his goodness. And I don't have to know when it's time to let it rip again. I don't know when everything's going to get back to normal or when life will just be full of victories again. But I know that God is near to the brokenhearted. I know that God is near to those who cry out to him. And I know that God is sovereign in our delays and our pauses. So ladies, our question tonight is, can we believe that? Can we believe in his goodness when the situation doesn't look good? Can we look at chapters 3 through 5, zoom in and see our very own stories, but then also zoom out and find these massive promises of God? And what I'm saying is when we at the beginning of our text this week, when we drew a picture of the ark, the mercy seat of God, being held with poles over the waters, Do you see how this big story of the Bible is being spoken of in that moment? Because in Genesis 1, we are told that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Like the throne of God was hovering over the waters. And why the Spirit of God was there hovering over the waters is because he was ready to make a home for his beloved children. He was ready to bring them home to the Garden of Eden. And do we see how our story this week pointed forward to Jesus? As we drew a picture of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the Word of God. As he went into the Jordan River, the same body of water. And as the Spirit descended on him, anointing him as King He came up and began his ministry of a new creation. Do we see this hint from from Joshua 3 through 5 that when the, the commander of the Lord's army is standing there with a sword and creates, like, demands a response from Joshua of humility, that we are getting a hint of how Jesus is described way at the end of the Bible when he is coming again to bring his children home to something even better than Eden, and he is described like this. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Remember that drawn sword? From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Guys, Joshua 3 through 5, like the whole book, is telling us that our God is king. 
And although he is a high and mighty king, he is a near and personal loving father. He is with you. He is with you as you cross waters. He's with you while you hurt. He's with you if you're mad that you're hurting. He's with you if you're receiving that hurt. He is with you in the presence of your enemies. And he is there to speak identity into you, inviting you to just join into his kingdom, to be who he's made you to be, to allow him to fight for you. This is our gospel hope, our gospel good news from Joshua. Let's pray. God, I pray specifically right now that we would know what our next step is. What is that obedience that you're asking us to do that we would look like the children of God? What is that next step, that old habit that needs to be restarted, that way of the world, that way of the flesh that needs to be rejected and removed from our life? What needs to get out of our minds so that we have space to remember you? Do a mighty work in these women, Lord. No matter what season they're in, good or bad, uphill or down, downhill climb, alone or full, busy or resting, Lord, show yourself to be merciful, faithful, and good. It's in your name we pray. Amen.